welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, are you triumphant now that the public has bullied me into drinking beer on our podcast? I am ecstatic. I saw, you know, earlier today, I saw you getting all kinds of trouble uh, for not drinking beer. And I saw someone even threaten uh, that they would do some sort of analysis of the actual number of psychologists we have on each episode and the number of beers consumed on each episode. And I suppose the the question is, are we lying? Is it false advertisements uh, to psychologists for beers? Uh, yeah. So the less people look into uh, the factual basis of our claims, the better, I think. Um, in order to head off some of that criticism, I've decided to go back to the beer. Excellent. Well, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, 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 to drinking beer with you. So have you heard and or watched uh, the new Netflix show, Cobra Kai? No. What is this? So, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. So you're from California, you're from Northern Cal, but this is very SoCal. So it's essentially a a show that is a continuation of Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid with Ralph Macchio, you know, uh, who's you know carrying on Mr. Miyagi's legacy. And the show is fantastic as Ralph Macchio's on there. Johnny, who's the kind of original teen villain, is on there. And I got to tell you, it gives me so many like feels, like 80s feels. Um, and I just can't get enough of it. So I'm missing that tonight. My family are going to be watching that tonight, but I love you and our special guests uh, so much that I'm like, you know, screw Cobra Kai. This is, this is going to be a lot more fun. Well, we all appreciate the sacrifices that you're making and thanks for that recommendation. Would you like to introduce our special guest? Yes, I would. So, um, our special guest is none other than Michael McCullough. Uh, Michael McCullough is a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego where he directs the Evolution and Human Behavior Lab. Uh, he received his PhD from Virginia Commonwealth University in 1995 and uh, an honorary doctorate from the University of Louvain in 2015. And uh, he was a longtime professor uh, for, for, for many years at the University of Miami before uh, his current gig at UCSD. Um, Michael studies pretty much anything that's interesting. Uh, so, but, you know, broadly speaking, you can say, you know, examines uh, human behavior and emotions uh, using the conceptual tools of evolutionary psychology and cognitive science. Um, but that is a really, really broad terrain. So he studied forgiveness, revenge, gratitude, empathy, religion, morality, um, and uh, a number of other things. Uh, Michael has uh, authored uh, over 150 papers and has been cited an incredible uh, over 50,000 times. So uh, a tremendous uh, number, a tremendous impact he's had on the field. Um, he just wrote a book that was just published uh, this this past year in 2020, uh, a book called The Kindness of Strangers, How a Selfish Ape Invented a New Moral Code. And we'll definitely be spending some time, uh, maybe the, the second half of the show, uh, talking about that book at length. And in, 20, in 2008, he wrote another book called Beyond Revenge, The Evolution of the Forgiveness Instinct. So uh, welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's a real pl- privilege and an honor. So I, And especially during this very weird time we're in for you to make time for me. So thanks a ton. Absolutely. And you know, before we continue... I, so uh, my name is also Michael, as you know, uh, but I, I cannot stand it when people call me Mike because that's not my name. My name is either Michael or Mickey. Uh, but uh, how should we refer to you? 
Mike, actually. <laughs> Mike is good. Yeah, right, that, that detestable name uh, is, you know, just, uh, you know, diminishing of, of my, of our first given names. But, you know, so be, actually that'll help to keep things uh, disambiguated. So uh, I'm really happy to go by such a um, pedestrian nickname. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so Yoel has already told us, he's threatened us, you know, with his beer drinking. So Yoel, what do you, what do you got for us today? Oh, so I, uh, a couple days ago, picked up a Unibrew sampler pack. It's like a 12-pack of different beers, and it came with this Megadeth Saison, uh, and I actually haven't, I don't think I've ever had this beer, and I haven't tried it yet, so I'm excited to see what it's like. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it have the, isn't, isn't logo, like, isn't it related to the band, Megadeth the band? Yeah, yeah, no, it has the Megadeth dude on it. Totally. So it's like a co-production or something. I don't really know. Maybe they just licensed him. But yeah, he's on the bottle. Excellent. And uh, Mike, what, what, what are you drinking? I have, um, a, well, I'm starting out with um, a very high test uh, Twining's English breakfast tea, uh, which is, you know, a way to really kick off a you know, a very special evening with, you know, very special friends. Um, and, you know, You're going crazy. You know, yeah, I just decided to throw caution to the wind tonight, you know, what the hell. Uh, and, you know, if, if that really sends me in a disinhibited direction, I've got a Stone IPA, um, which is uh, a beer that's pretty common down here. And uh, it's uh, super delicious. Uh, we have a lot of really hopped IPAs in Southern California, uh, particularly in San Diego. It's one of the... I, I think perhaps somewhat immodestly uh, one of the best uh, beer towns in, in the, in the States. So we have kind of a uh, embarrassment of riches and stone is definitely a go-to for a lot of people. You know what? Uh, one of our uh, recurring guests, Liz Page Gould, I think that is her all time favorite uh, beer, a stone IPA. Um, well, if a friend of um, a friend of stone is a friend of mine, so uh, it sounds like we'd have things to talk about. You, you know, speaking of, I hate to take over the conversation, uh, you know, on this topic, since we have so many other, like, extremely important topics. But, you know, I've been thinking about the, the title of your podcast. And I actually, no kidding, I was really troubled by the fact that Yoel doesn't drink much beer. <clears throat> and I, I had an idea. Uh, maybe this is, Maybe you've heard this idea before, but I just... I want to propose a name change. It seems like you guys could easily, without anybody changing their behavior, go to the name Two Shrinks for Drinks. Yeah, that's that's better. That's better in every way. Yeah. Jeez. If only we had thought of this like a year ago, right? <laughs> right. We just got new branding and everything. I mean uh, Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> well, well we're we're committed for the time being, but you know, we'll we'll put that on the uh to do list eventual name change to better reflect our actual behavior. And uh, thanks for that suggestion. It's, you know, if we go on tangents, it's cool. I'm thrilled to do that. We just, you know, won't talk about your book at all, but I'm sure that'll be <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> um, all right. So I've got, what do I have? I've got um, something from a brewery that I have not tried before. It's a stone hooker brewing company. And this is Broad Reach, a Nor'easter IPA. So I'm assuming this is one of these, uh, very fashionable, hazy IPAs that everyone's talking about these days. A juicy, hazy IPA. So I'm looking forward to drinking that. So uh, cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. Cheers. Mike, uh, something that we ask uh, a lot of our guests is to talk a bit about how they got to where they are. 
Um, oh, we have a lot of researchers, uh, <laughs> a lot of listeners who are early career researchers who I think really find that interesting and useful to hear like, you know, what, how did people get their start in the field? What drew them to their area and, and so on. So like just generally, how did you end up where you are? What was your undergrad major? How did you decide to do a PhD? Um, and how did you end up on the academic path? Uh, I actually went to the University of Florida and thought I would go into counseling. That was, in fact, that was my my plan. Um, I worked in the laboratories of a couple of counseling psychologists there, and really liked personality psychology. And I really liked counseling psychology and applied behavior analysis and all those kind of classes that you would take if, you know, what you really enjoy is bossing people around and telling them about how their behavior ought to be different. So, uh, you know, counseling, you know, I'm an older sibling, and so I've just done that all my life is tell people what to do. So I thought I'd be a great counselor, because <laughs> that's what counselors do. Um, so I, I thought I'd be... Boss fan- people around. That's yeah, a, that's right. You know, I look for that in a, in a counselor, actually. Yeah, you, you know, you're really screwing things up in your life. So let me... <laughs> Let, let me take the next 50 minutes to tell you what you need to do differently. Um, so I was going to go into counseling psychology. I really wanted to be a counselor with like, you know, hanging out a shingle. And um, actually what happened was I went to the advising office um, in, in the department where undergraduates go to get career counseling and stuff like that. And the woman that was helping me, uh, she was a PhD student at UF and she was looking at the courses I took and, you know, whatever, the things I'd done. And she said, you know, you ought to, ought to go into research. You know, you, you clearly liked statistics and you clearly like research methods and all that. Like, why, why don't you do that? You could. And I said, well, I, I actually want to help people. And she said, well, you know, you could help people through research. I mean, a lot of people, you know, she, she said, you know, a lot of people at med schools help people by doing their research, you know, their basic research. And, and I guess that kind of you know, warmed my heart and got me thinking a little bit more broadly. So I did go into my PhD program to work with uh, an advisor who um, just had an extraordinary um, record of uh, publishing, I thought, really interesting stuff on the topics that interested me, religion and mental health, religion and counseling, um, some things like forgiveness. Um, He was really interested in marital counseling, but the key was that he was doing a lot of research, and it was research that was ending up in, in superb outlets, and I thought he was a very creative researcher, and he had just a great reputation as a human being and as an advisor. So I went to work with him, and we published a lot. He's, he was just a great, just a superb mentor. His name's Everett Worthington, um, and we got a lot of work done, and um, what I realized, I suppose through the, 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 you know, the years of my PhD program is that um, the speed at which you can kind of generate knowledge in counseling research is very slow because you have to do these massive studies where you, you know, randomly assign people to psychotherapy conditions or counseling conditions. And it's just a massive amount of work. I did intervention studies for my master's and my PhD and it just takes forever, and it's just so much effort. And I, I guess I just realized I was too impatient to do that kind of work, and that what I actually really liked was 
being in the laboratory and designing experiments that you can do quick, you know, relatively quickly and get results. And I, I guess the inferential yield just seemed to be higher for me for more basic research. And, you know, I, I just found that I, I liked social psychology a lot and I liked personality psychology. So I, you know, I continued to work on religion and continued to work on forgiveness, but it was more and more becoming basic. So I went and finished, you know, I finished my internship uh, in counseling psych, got my PhD and went to my first job. And um, it was a tenure track job at Louisiana Tech University and uh, stayed there about a year. And I actually left academia after a year to work full time in a nonprofit uh, that really was devoted to research on on religion and uh, its links to health and spiritual well-being and, and stuff like that. And I was there for four years. And, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, in, in hindsight, well, even at the time people thought, people I knew who were already professors and stuff like that said, you know, that's kind of unwise. That's kind of a crazy thing to do if really what you ultimately want to do is get back into academia. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose in hindsight it was, it was a sort of maybe, you know, headstrong, kind of foolhardy thing to do. But I just knew it would be a better fit for me. I, I would get to do a lot more work. And it was in a city that it was in Washington, D.C., which I thought would be a more fun place to live and things like that. So I was able to get back into academia four years later. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the things that really was made those four years valuable is that I was publishing. I, the, my job was to do research and publish it in good journals. So in some ways, it was like a really well-paid postdoc, you know? And um, then I was able to get back on the academic, uh, you know, get back into the academic racket at Southern Methodist University, which was a wonderful department uh, in Dallas, Texas. Um, we started having kids, so we moved back to Miami. And at that point, I was really kind of operating as a, as a, a social psychologist. Um, I, you know, at that point, had pretty much shed all of my identity as a counseling psychologist. And ever since then, you know, the past 20 years, I guess I've been, you know, the owner-operator of a social psychology lab. Um, and I, I guess, you know... I mean, if I'm, if I'm being really honest, I've, I've really just kind of followed my nose and looked at, you know, each choice point when I come to it and, you know, tried to think like, what is the better, what would be better for me? What would be better for my family? What would give me more opportunities? What cities would be better? Um, and, and I've just, you know, you know, so a lot of it's been just brownie and, you know, it's just been brownie in motion, just kind of being pushed by the, the forces that are acting on me um, and uh, probably being kind of stupid and not particularly um, strategic in how I make my... Strategic locally, but not, not with some sort of grand career plan in mind. So there's a couple of really interesting things in there that I'd like to follow up on. Uh, the first is, you know, when you said, oh, part of what was attractive about lab work is it's just so much quicker, right? You're not doing these big intervention studies in the field. Instead, you can like iterate on these smaller lab studies much more quickly and generate knowledge more quickly that way. And it, when I heard you say that, I felt like 
Samin Vizier, a friend of the show, we had her on recently, like yelling in my head because I feel like what she would say to that is, well, isn't that what let us down this road where now we have a bunch of laboratory work that we don't know whether it's true or not, right? She might say, yeah, well, that that rapid progress is illusory in that it it came as part of a culture where people would I think it, she would at least say cut corners, right? Um, you run t- too few subjects, you take analytical shortcuts, your methods are geared towards what's easy rather than what lets you make the soundest inferences. And that that as a field, that that approach has been really problematic for us. Do you see any truth to that critique? Oh, well, I, I think that's certainly true of you know, a lot of areas of research, um, the, where the premium has been on, you know, publishing a lot of papers and publishing them quickly and, you know, trying to promote your students through helping them to have lots and lots of publishing opportunities. Uh, I guess I would say that those pressures really aren't any different among people who do intervention work, who do for example, example, randomized controlled trials of antidepressant medications. Um, it looks to me that they've, you know, although that work is much slower and much more expensive to do than running some undergraduate s- samples in the laboratory or, you know, having, you know, having people participate in experiments that they can kind of complete in an hour, um, it's certain you know it it it's certainly much slower than that but at the end of the day you're still trying to get your work published and you're you know i think every field runs on uh results positive findings so i don't think that's the key difference between applied work and basic work I think the diff. I think the main difference is, as a matter of fact, I, I think there's. I I can't remember the, the the researchers who've worked on this, but my recollection is that the evidence is pretty good that randomized controlled trials suffer from a lot of the same uh, questionable research practices that have been, you know, indicted in the more basic, you know, areas of cognitive and social and personality psychology selective reporting of measures and the selective um, sort of examination, you know, sort of semi-arbitrary examinations and removals of outliers. You know, a lot of those um, venial sins um, are, you know, are, are common a lot of, along a lot of research areas. I, I don't, I certainly don't need to tell you this. Um, and, I, and I don't think the applied areas of psychology are, are by any means exempt from that. Um, it, it could be that they should be taking those issues even more seriously than, than we should in as much as, you know, they're trying to study things that would actually help people to live, you know, truly better lives. They're a lot, they're a lot closer to, their research is a lot closer to the heart of that mission than, than most of our research is, I think. So perhaps they should even be taking it more seriously than, than, than we are in, in, in a certain sense. Yeah, that's a interesting way to put it. So, like, I've heard the argument made before that it's actually in a, a big uh, field experiment or RCT that you might expect the greatest pressure 
to make a result happen, right? If it's only publishable, if it turns out positive, it's just so high investment, right? You've spent years of your life, you're maybe spending tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on this thing. So you better damn well get something, right? So that pressure there to... Uh, you know, pick the right endpoint, include the right covariates, uh, subgroup, whatever, you know, all this stuff that um, that is doable, regardless of whether you're looking at a smaller lab experiment or a bigger field experiment. Like those are all options that that are on the table that might, you know, make make a result appear, right? Those those are gonna kind of be almost irresistible if you have such a high investment in in that study. Right. And I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it, it may not even be just hundreds of thousands of dollars. It may be millions. It may be tens of millions of dollars for really large, important clinical trials. Um, so, you know, along with that, there are very often a dozen senior investigators, all of whom are putting major outlays of time and effort into the project. And, you know, at the end of the day, they, they're all... You know they're doing this work while forsaking other opportunities to you know participate in other research projects. So they're also you know there's lots of people who are eager to get paid. You know in in the sense of you know continuing to have impact on on science through that work. So that's a real pressure. I think there's also a pressure associated with. Um, perhaps trying to find some dimension where this thing is improving people's lives. So maybe the theory underlying the, the mechanisms of action are not, this is just speculation, but, but, but maybe the mechanisms of action are, are not particularly deeply tied to theory so there really aren't maybe theories at stake a lot of the times. So it, it, it becomes sort of just a search for ways in which this, this effort, this thing we're doing with people, is, is moving some kind of needle to, to make their lives better. So, um, you know, it may be just an attempt to, like, let's, let's find some kind of signal in here that we, we can point to to, you know, I identify some problem of living that this this intervention might be good at assisting people with. So right. So so, so that's a more charitable take, I guess, because it's a it's about you know you really want to believe that whatever it is works and helps people in some way. Exactly, and and you know I think often the goals of those projects are not to some. I mean, there's many exceptions to this. But a lot of times the, the theorizing been, been under the hood is maybe sort of thin. Um, and so there, it, there's not a ton learned from n- negative results. Um, so the, the goal is perhaps to figure out what aspects of mental health or physical health are, is, are, are being improved through through this intervention or you know or possibly worsened so yeah i do i do try and maybe this is just a function of my own experience with that clinical research endeavor i i do i do try to (laughs) 
use a principle use the principle of charity when when trying to interpret you know what it is that they show up for work motivated to try to do with their work yeah that's i think an, another reason to do that is like you you really don't know what people's motivations are in most cases and i would think that in most cases even the people themselves don't really know right so for somebody who's testing an intervention that they think will really help people it's some probably complicated mix of really believing in the intervention really wanting it to work really wanting to help people but of course then there's also professional benefits if the thing works and it becomes a high profile paper there's the investment that's been made of time and money and so on so how are you going to parse out you know which of those is is most important and uh you know, explaining the behavior. Absolutely. I, they, they have, I think, all, all of the pressures we have to publish and be successful and get tenure and get promotions and get raises and all that. But in addition, they um, they're, they're, they have some technology in their hands that they're trying to use to help um, to help women have better recoveries from uterine cancer or to, you know, to help very depressed people to stop thinking about killing themselves. You know, that is, that's noble work. And if you can find some, I suppose I'm engaging in some mind reading here, but I can imagine that in, in that environment, there are a lot of incentives that are generated by good intentions to, to figure out some way in which your massive intervention study is capable of getting into that psychological machinery. Um, so, so maybe cloaked in a kind of righteous, the, the righteousness of that mission, the, no, you know, the nobility of that cause, maybe it's, it's easier to you know, trick yourself, fool, you know, to fool yourself into believing that results that have emerged from questionable research practices are, you know, are worth talking about, are worth trying to publicize. Um, It's almost as if, uh, Mike, Mike, that uh, you are, this principle of charity, one might say might lead you to forgive, for example, scholars or researchers who engage in these QRPs. (laughs) To understand all is to forgive all. I, you know, I mean, there's there, these are not. I, I do not think that by any means people engaged in applied work are licensed to a free pass on these issues. Far from it. I think they need to be that entire de- endeavor needs to be held to an extremely high standard, precisely for the reasons that that are surplus reasons for those people. You are trying to make them better off, and <laughs> if if they are invested in interventions that aren't moving the needle they they we need to know that and be able to move on so i i think that that additional burden or incentive cuts both ways it might tempt you to try to find things that are just sort of chasing noise but it also sort of should discipline you not to do that Right. Um, so, of course, my question was uh, was a bit, you know, uh, cheeky because I was trying to segue into uh, yeah, some of your work on uh, forgiveness. Uh, so uh, you've done an immense amount of work. 
I would say in, in, in topic areas that are kind of maybe fall under, you know, moral emotions. So, so forgiveness, gratitude. Um, and since we were talking about, again, you know, potentially, you know, being charitable towards people who have transgressed, uh, again, one might frame this as forgiveness. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about, I mean, you've written, you know, a lot about this topic. So, you know, what is forgiveness? And I guess one question that I'm particularly interested in is, what determines whether someone, you know, forgives someone else versus, you know, the opposite, you know, trying to get, uh, seek uh, uh, restitution, retribution, revenge? The advice your your grandmother gave you is probably the, the best advice there is, which is to apologize and to try to make up for your your mistakes, your trans, your transgressions, the ways you've you've offended people. And, you know, of, of all the things that We've studied, hardly only me, but lots of researchers, including uh, my, people in my lab and I have studied, is just how apologies and offers of compensation exert their effects on forgiveness. And we've, so, so that's clearly one. I mean, if I had, you know, if there was one takeaway, it would be, you know, try to, fi- you know, try to figure out how to screw up your courage to admit your mistakes accept them, accept the fact that they, they put you in a pretty bad moral light. They, you know, a, a proper apology often involves not sort of deflecting blame, but in fact saying, you know, I behaved, I behaved badly. I behaved atrociously. I, you know, I, I revealed myself to not be a great person, but I'm trying to disavow that. I'm trying to distance myself from, from that way of being in the world. So um, real apologies are tough. Um, They involve, um, they involve losses of standing temporarily, you know, because, you, you know, a good apology involves something like, I didn't think much, I didn't think enough of you not to do that. You know, I, I didn't, you know, even if it's sort of like, well, what can we think of? Like, um, you know, I humili- I did something humiliating to you online. You know, you could say like, well, I, I really was trying to embarrass you. I really was trying to humiliate you. Um, okay, and that would be bad. But I could try to distance myself by saying, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. You know, and that would be, you know, I didn't mean to humiliate you. Or I was just being silly or being funny. But even underneath that, I, I, I think is... I wasn't affording you enough respect in advance. I wasn't thinking, I wasn't taking your point of view in advance seriously enough to think about how that behavior might harm you. So, so even when you try to distance you know, yourself from intention, you, you really can't distance yourself from sort of a, a carelessness with other people's feelings. So every, every apology, I think, or admission of blame is going to involve, you know, you, you know, sacrificing your you know, your own moral standard on, you know, the altar of trying to repair a relationship. And then, uh, I mean, actually, it's kind of interesting. Uh, when you started talking, I just started thinking, I don't know why my mind went to, to, to reparations, right? So right now we're living, we're in a particularly, um, uh, quote unquote, interesting time in the United States, uh, where there's a lot of social unrest, a lot of people upset about lots of things, but one of them is, um, you know, rampant uh, discrimination and racism and bias, um, and uh, against you know uh, black people predominantly, but other groups as well. And there, there are some groups that are uh, suggesting that one way forward, one way to heal the wounds 
uh, in the United States uh, would be something like reparations. So I wonder if you thought much about that in the context of your work on forgiveness and whether you think that would be a good idea, given what you know about forgiveness. Yeah, I have very, very um, um, preliminary thoughts about reparations. I haven't thought about it tons and tons. But I, I actually, in the very limited thinking I've, you know, attention I've given it, I, I, I think it could actually be a pretty, it, to me, it's, you know, on the face of it, a pretty persuasive idea. Um, I don't know how one would administer it, and I can, you know, I can see just this long string of complications and caveats and quibbles and potentially unintended side effects. But on the on its face. Uh, I I certainly can see ways in which um, providing the descendants of of slaves um, with some sort of financial reparations would would restore uh, a sense of justice and and equity and would provide people with some capital that would enable them to you know improve. Their lives. I mean, we have, you know, we have to admit that that, that in you know, in, in this country, uh, there is you know a huge amount of inequality that's only you know it's only getting worse, and um, a lo- you know a lot of people are so v- vulnerable right now um, from just a, the the basic lack of safety net that um, you, you know new new inflows of capital could really elevate their their situation. Um, and I think the, the evidence is actually, the, the evidence we know from, from other interventions, not interventions of that scale, but other kinds of interventions is that, you know, they can work. Um, um, programs um, that involve, you know, uh, cash distributions, often people use to really good ends that end up improving their situation. So I'm really open to it. Um, again, I, I'm, you know, I haven't thought about it tons, but to me, I, there is on the face of it some, some reason to take that idea pretty seriously. So I guess this brings up the idea of, you know, apologizing not for something that you did yourself, like in your example, uh, I, you know, made fun of you online. Well, that's, on me, whether it's that I was doing it maliciously or, or just didn't think about the consequences, right? Versus apologizing on behalf of your group where people's reaction might be, well, I didn't do anything and therefore I have nothing to apologize for. I think that's the reaction from a lot of people um, when they're confronted with these sorts of claims. Right. Well, I mean, I think we turn to the government uh, for compensations all the time, or we turn we re- we turn to institutions to make us whole in all sorts of settings. If we're damaged by a product, or if we're damaged by um, uh, a substance, or we're damaged, uh, you know, our our health is damaged at work. We we turn to um, those corporations that have you know damaged us, and we expect to be made whole. And and sometimes the government, in fact, steps in and and takes you know some ownership of of of, of those situations and um, requires those co- uh, corporations to establish funds to compensate victims. I mean, one great example of that is the tobacco industry, 
where after years and years and years of lying about the neg- you know the health effects of tobacco, um, many states sued the tobacco industry and and they were forced to uh, create funds to try to make people whole, um, to prevent smoking going forward and to compensate you know the, the victims of, of lung cancer and, and, and other ailments that are smoking related. Um, we did the same thing with asbestos. I mean, you can't turn on daytime TV in the United States, um, of which I've been watching a lot lately, um, with, without seeing an attorney talk about the fact that if you have a particular kind of lung disease and you worked with asbestos as a younger person, you could be entitled to compensation. So, it, you know, it could be, you know, when were we, when did we stop using asbestos as a, as an, you know, um, insulating material? I think it was decades ago. So the corporate, you know, so the, you know, the executives who were hiding the data uh, about the effects of asbestos or the effects of tobacco, I mean, probably a lot of them are dead. You know, a lot of the the agents, the people actually exercising agency in those situations are long gone. But we still hold the entities that were sort of conduits for that agency responsible for making people whole. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, obviously there's kind of legal standards for when an entity, like a corporate entity, is responsible. Um, And, you know, I think oftentimes it's the insurance company that pays, or at least, you know, is the corporation's uh, standpoint is then that, well, it's the insurance company's job to cover this, and then they have a legal fight over who's responsible. So I guess I'm curious more about like, well, what are people's moral intuitions in that case, whether there's anything no- – this is something that I feel like I actually should know about. Um, so I would put money on the idea that if people are given a scenario about this corporation does this bad thing and there's a legal judgment against them and they're held responsible and their insurance covers it, I would think most people wouldn't find that particularly morally satisfying. <laughs> they might be like great for the victims, but somehow like justice hasn't been done. But so that makes me think about like a kind of more broadly, like how do people think about this kind of collective responsibility? So like if Mickey is my colleague and he does something bad, to what extent do people think I'm kind of on the hook for it as well? Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, I think part of, in, in part of what you're saying, there's the question of what do victims find satisfying? So this, this goes to, I think, the, the question of retributivism. Are, are people looking for, does a just situation in the face of harm to, um, just you know, subjectively just, selectively, so subjectively satisfying um, response to harm have to hurt? Does it does it need to hurt the the agent? You know, does does it does it need to involve the infliction of pain on the the agents of the harm? And you know, I, I share I share your intuition that you know, if an insurance company steps in and funds the you know, the tobacco um, settlement funds, uh, you know, if R.J. Reynolds' insurance, you know, and ultimately funded that. So R.J. Reynolds got hurt on the front end in having to pay these, you know, these insurance premiums. Is that satisfying to people? And um, 
I mean, it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that question. Um, if if the insurance company is ultimately paying it out and R.J. Reynolds pays no, you know, encounters no pain because they already paid their pain, you know, they already encountered their pain in advance through the insurance. I guess I'm, I guess I think that they, if people thought that through, they wouldn't be quite as satisfied with a settlement. Um, you, you, you want the corporation to hurt in the same way that they injured, you know, you know, a, an entire class of people. Yeah. And I would say, you know, if, if people probably have this understanding of corporations that's sort of underspecified, like if you were to say, well, you know, as a consequence of this settlement, uh, RJ Reynolds stock lost, let's say 30% of its value people might be like, oh, great, you know, that's bad for the corporation. But then you're like, well, you know, who owned that stock? Like a lot of index funds. And who owned those index funds? A lot of people with 401ks. And it's like, there's really no way I feel like to get at the people that you really want to get at, which is like the people in charge, right? Those are, I. that's my moral intuition. It's like the people who made the decisions, not like some dude in, you know, uh, I don't know, Kansas who owns an index fund, who owns part of this bad corporation right that that's really a great point i mean the the responsibility gets so diluted so quickly that you i mean i think this is this you know to the extent that people think this through i i think they're going to ultimately run aground on the realization that i really can't inflict retaliatory pain on the people who made the decisions that ended up hurting me um, the index fund idea is, is terrific. Um, you know, to the extent that you own, you know, stocks and tobacco companies, you're, com you know, complicit in, you know, propping them up to poison people, uh, you know, and, and, and so on. So, you know, it could be that we, the, to the extent a settlement is satisfying, it's you know it's because you really haven't thought through the lack of pain that you're that you're actually managing to inflict. So I you know I, I think you know there's an, an there's actually an analog to this in ma many truth and reconciliation commissions around the world. You know we think of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and also in Rwanda as being sort of trademarks, but lots of places have had truth. They've come to actually call them truth commissions more recently rather than truth and reconciliation commissions. But one of, in any case, and in part, that is because one of the sad realizations is this is an imperfect kind of justice. People really can't be made whole through truth-telling because often this truth-telling is incentivized by leniency on perpetrators. You know, the thing that gives them an incentive to be honest about you know, the violence they sanctioned or the violence they actually actively participated in is the idea that they'll get some kind of leniency or perhaps even amnesty because of the value of truth, because of the, the way in which telling truth eliminates the ability to you know to hide behind any kind of impunity or denial but that's a really imperfect justice because it's short of retribution it's short of inflicting retaliatory pain and it is unsatisfying to many people it ends up being really 
quite, you know, kind of disappointing in a lot of cases. It's not clear how much reconciliation ends up happening in many of those cases. So I, I, I think this is one of, and I wrote a bit about this in Beyond Revenge. Um, I think this is one of those sort of sad realizations that we ultimately cannot make the world perfect often when when people have been harmed in really complex corporate situations you know never mind the fact that we often can't do that just on you know in face to face interaction there you know there are some harms i simply cannot you know that that i might inflict on somebody you know just a single person that i can't make you know i can't make them whole i can't undo the harm so that that's just magnified when we're talking about big corporate inflictions of harm I have a clarification question. So I get, I was under the impression, I wonder if I, it's, it was, it was, it's false now, that victims of crime are more satisfied with, um, you know, these truth and reconciliation sorts of processes versus, uh, you know, punishment of, of, of transgressors. But is that incorrect? Is, is it actually the case that victims prefer, you know, again, inflicting pain on, on the perpetrators? Yeah, um, I, think, I think the best place to look for some guidance on that is through the literature on restorative justice. And actually, Canada has been a world leader in the restorative justice movement. I actually think, at least in Ontario, part of the penal code says that monies have to be set aside for restorative justice each year um are you are you um hip to that whole thing uh, i've had to pay a couple of times for 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 people i've bullied in, in high school but uh <laughs> no i'm not kidding no I'm, I'm not i'm not aware of that yeah I mean, you know i i um read up on this some time ago but Canada's been really serious about exploring the power of restorative justice uh new zealand has also been really involved australia um, and and it's kind of crept into the United States to to some extent, um, but the but the idea here is that the idea behind restorative justice is that actually retribution is only one possible way to inflict a kind of retaliatory suffering on a perpetrator, and in fact. What we really want is, at least part of what we really want, is not harm for the joy of harming in a retaliatory way, but it's teaching a perpetrator a lesson and trying to change them so that they're less likely to repeat their offenses. So the way restorative, I mean, so restorative justice is a, a movement that has come together out of the recognition that the way conventional criminal justice systems work is somebody's harmed by a crime, they, re- they report the crime, they give a police report, um, the, police, the, the district attorney uh, decides whether or not to press charges. And then at that point, it is, the, the victim is essentially taken out of the system entirely, except possibly as a witness in a trial. But there is, you know, the... Ultimately, a jury will convict and a judge will administer a sentence. And then the victim is out of that system. So the victim doesn't get anything except watching a person go away. They don't get an explanation. They don't get an apology. They don't get any sense of why they were victimized in the first place. They're just left with all these questions 
depression, worry, fear, you know, uh, all of their assumptions about the world they lived in has been, have been shattered. And so this, this disconnect between the very intimate interpersonal nature of a harm and the impersonal nature of how justice is, is, is administered leaves people really unsatisfied with the criminal justice system. So the way re- uh, restorative justice has, the movement has unfolded, its centerpiece has been um, a little device called um, the Victim Offender Conference. And, and, and actually, um, it's, it's easy to get training to be a mediator um, for these conferences in Ontario. You can, can learn how to get involved really easily. And um, the, the idea is that a, a willing victim and a willing offender, after sentencing, let's say, or, you know, after, after the judge has, you know, if it's a kid who vandalized a car or broke into somebody's house to steal money to buy drugs or whatever, um, you know, after, after that whole system has run its course, you know, maybe these people want to get together and the victim has a bunch of questions. Why did you do this? Why did you single me out? What was, you know, what, what was it about me? Didn't you, couldn't you see that how vulnerable I was? And, you know, I was so nice to you as a neighbor, you know, whatever, why, why me? And likewise, the, the, the offender may want to apologize and explain. So, th- so there's, these are willing victims, willing offenders. And, and what, you know, these, these meetings can take half an hour or they can take 12 hours. You know, it just, it, generally there's a social worker or a police officer involved um, and, and possibly trained volunteers from the community. What, and, and they've been evaluated pretty rigorously through randomized controlled trials. And um, what those data show uh, in aggregate is that people's desire for revenge really goes down a lot, like 16-fold, 10-fold reductions in the desire for revenge, Um, 10-fold reductions in the, uh, pardon me, 10-fold increases in the extent to which they report that they got a good apology, Um, feelings of um, satisfaction with life, satisfaction with the criminal justice system, and there is also some evidence, I think it's much weaker evidence, but um, it is clearly a, a, an effect that is bigger than zero per the existing work, that it actually uh, reduces recidivism by, I think, giving offenders a recognition of the harms that they create that they don't realize they create, the second order harms. Not only do you steal someone's stuff or you know, vandalize their homes, but you've turned someone into a victim. You've turned someone into, you've terrified somebody, you know, you've given somebody PTSD. And so there's a shame associated with, with recognizing all these second order harms that I think serves as a, uh, an impediment to reoffending. So that's a really powerful kind of truth and reconciliation, you know, sort of micro level truth and reconciliation. Um, Often they involve vows of compensation. Here are the ways in which I will try to make things up to you. So to me, it's kind of a model of forgiveness. 
it has all the key ingredients. It, it can have all the key ingredients for, for, for real forgiveness to happen. Well, you're, you're giving me hope, Michael, because th- that I might forgive uh, UL for all the transgressions he has committed against me. You know, evidently um, in Ontario, it's easy to get one of these sessions, and I can just lay out my uh, sincere repentance for not drinking enough beer. Um, yeah, you know, I, I've heard of this... Um, this concept before, uh, Tamler Summers, uh, philosopher, friend of the show, is a big fan of of this and talks it up a lot. And I do. My intuition is too that this like element of personal involvement is so important here, and that the criminal justice system kind of by design strips that away. Right, as as a criminal offender, you've offended actually against the state, not against a person. Right, it's state of California v whoever. Um, and, and that just like, I think it's just not a good match with our moral intuitions where we feel like it was, something was done to me. Like I should be, I should be in the picture here much more than I am. Exactly. And you know, what's funny about that is, you know, we have the criminal justice system and then we also have the civil justice system where, you know, and essentially, in some ways, equivalent crimes show up. So you think about O.J. Simpson, for example. In criminal court, he was tried for murder, found if you found innocent, found not guilty. But in the civil system, he was found liable for wrongful death. Okay, and that was victim versus offender. So the two parties involved. Nicole Wallace, uh, pardon me, Nicole Simpson, uh, of course, was was not the person to sue. I guess it was her family who who sued, um, but they sued for wrongful death and against OJ. So it was a you know a a person har- claiming harm by another person, and and Simpson was found liable for that. So I can only imagine, I mo- literally, I can only imagine that that ended up that had the potential to lead to a more satisfying outcome. All else equal. I mean, he wasn't going to go to jail. The money helped. Well, well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, the, if you, what, you buy, what you buy in the civil, civil system is because it's based on the preponderance of evidence, the preponderance of evidence that he was liable, is you, is, is you 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 get a kind of you, you get on the record that this harm really happened it was real um the punishment is not going to be what you wanted nobody's going to go to jail nobody's liberty is going to be at stake in a civil suit but it is you know you have you have succeeded in achieving your goal as the harmed party i wanted this person to um, to to pay the costs that I want that I asked that the court to make them pay. Over on the criminal side, yes, he could have been put away for life, or I, I suppose put on. I don't know. I don't know how the state of California works. Maybe there was a death penalty. I don't know. But in any case, he there could have been a much more satisfying punishment. You know, uh, but the control that the victim's loved ones had over the, the, the way the offense was named and 
the um, I guess the likelihood of succeeding was much lower. So um, this is an I, I think I've backed myself into kind of an uncomfortable example here. But we we do put victims more prominently in the civil system than we certainly than we do in the criminal system. Uh, so listen, Michael, we have like this. I have like a zillion questions I want to ask you about so many things. But I see that we're uh, you know how quickly time has run, and I want to make sure that we have a lot of time to talk about your book. So how about we take a little break, uh, freshen up our drinks, and we'll be back in uh, a couple of minutes. Hey there, listeners. Yoel here. We're sponsored again this week by The Great Courses Plus. Uh, The Great Courses Plus is a video streaming service that has a simply enormous library of courses that lets you educate yourself on basically any topic you can imagine. So anything from psychology to world history to cooking, really whatever you can think of. Uh, And all of this uh, content, all of these courses that they have are objective, fact-based, presented by top experts in the area. And this all comes through the Great Courses Plus app, which makes it really easy to access these courses anywhere, anytime. Uh, that you have a few minutes to spare. Uh, so a course that uh, caught my eye recently was Understanding the Brain. This is taught by Jeanette Norden. She's a professor of neuroscience at Vanderbilt University. So I think this would be really interesting for anybody who's ever wanted to have a better understanding of neuroscience. It starts with the basics, uh, and then it works up through topics like drugs, consciousness, sleep and dreaming. Uh, so really uh, interesting content, really in-depth, really informative. Um, and this is just, again, one of the many, many things available on The Great Courses Plus. So now is the perfect time to start with The Great Courses Plus because they are giving our listeners a limited time offer, which is a free month trial of unlimited access to the entire library, access to any and all courses for the next month, totally free. And you can get that by signing up using our special URL to get started. So start your free month now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. That URL, one more time, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. Thanks again to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring our show this week. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. 
Mickey and I both check that account so you can app mention us, you can DM us, and it'll go to both of us. If you're more of an email sort of person, fourbeerspod at gmail.com is the show's email address. Again, that goes to both of us. Finally, our website, fourbeers.com, where you can listen to any of our episodes. You can drop us a line there as well if you like. If you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That just helps other people discover the show and also makes us happy. Mickey, have I left anything out? I think you've covered all the bases. I just want to thank uh, the listeners who have uh, commented and reviewed us late, lately. I think we've got a, a few reviews in the past a little bit, and they're always uh, a pleasure to read, especially when they badmouth rival podcasts. That's I love that especially. Um, so uh, thank you all for doing that, and keep uh, keep it up. Yeah, thanks. We really appreciate uh, each and every one. Uh, we appreciate any email, um, really anything where listeners reach out and tell us what they liked, disliked, about any of our episodes. Although I guess we like it when they like things more than when they dislike things, don't we? Unless they dislike something that we find exceedingly humorous. That's true. Uh, like the like when they criticize when one of the listeners criticized us for being too woke. I I I I found I, I derived pleasure from that. That was hilarious. <laughs> okay, so yeah. um, uh, being mindful of our time, um, I, we need to talk about beers. Thank you for visually cueing me. Uh, Mickey, what have you got there? So I've got a beer that I first shot at your house, uh, which seems like uh, a decade ago. Uh, this is a uh, burdock saison uh, called Tuesday. And that's a little local, local uh, you know, a brew pub uh, in downtown Toronto. And this, I've had this a number of times and it's delightful. Awesome. I'm back to the Stella. Uh, I had one unibrew and that's one per evening probably is about enough for me. So I'm now back to uh, the watery European Budweiser, which I so love. Stella's my kid's beer. So um, yeah, we've got, we've got, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> we've got that kicking around. Um, I'm still working on that stone IPA, but at some point I'll, I'll switch over to a torpedo IPA which uh, is uh, Sierra Nevada beer. Um, they're in Chico, California, and it's an extra IPA, actually. Um, it's, for me, it's kind of a go-to beer. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Uh, so, Mike, uh, you have a new book that's just, it's just out now. Is that right? Awesome. Came out in July. Yeah. Um, great. Uh, it's called The Kindness of Strangers, colon, how a selfish ape invented a new moral code. So can you tell us a little about what the book is about? Right. Uh, this is a book I set out to write in order to explain something that I thought was very weird about human behavior, which is why we take an interest, an abiding interest in the welfare of complete strangers. Um, this is zoologically unique. Um, there's not a lot of traits you can actually say that about and get away with it. Um, but, but this is a weird one. Um, the fact that we um, reach into our own pockets co corporately and individually to, uh, or, you know, mark off time on our schedules in order to engage in activities or uh, write checks in order to help people not only that we will never meet um, who are suffering, but perhaps we don't even know where they live or what, and you know, their names are. 
um, people clear, you know, uh, in the antipodes, people we will never meet. There's no chance we will meet, you know, we will, we'll meet with them. Um, so this is, this is a kind of, this sort of altruism uh, towards strangers is something that a lot of evolutionary social scientists have written about, particularly over the past couple of, couple of decades. But I found that their approaches to it were um, a little bit thin, and they didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really find them satisfactory because they seemed to me to really ignore the texture of history. Um, m- most, of, most of the evolutionary treatments you will encounter about altruism towards strangers want to explain it as the result of um, sort of our, our evolved instincts for establishing reciprocal relationships. You know, um, I'll, I'll, you know I'll, yes, we're strangers, we've never met, um, and I'll do something nice for you on the prospect that in the future we'll re-encounter each other and, and you'll do something for me. Um, almost surely that's been a, an important, um, you know, natural selection has had scope to create that instinct in us. Uh, so it's often consigned to that or it's often um, attributed to a kind of uh, evolution of tastes for helping our groups, to helping our, our, our groups at a cost to us individually, but in a way that benefits the group on average, and so it spreads because the group is more successful at, at doing things groups do. Um, and then I, I suppose the final account is uh, you know, attributable, attributed mostly to Richard Dawkins, which is, we just make mistakes, you know. We, we we think we're interacting with people. We will interact again, and uh, we won't. Or you know, we're, we're we evolved to live in a world where we're around genetic relatives, and now we're around people who aren't our genetic relatives, and we make these these adaptations that we 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 possess for um, cooperation just make mistakes. And I just really found these explanations to be, as I say, a little bit thin and um, uh, not properly not adequately respectful of the the historical facts on the ground i think there are other instincts at work and that's sort of what i discovered is that i i think there are it is based on human instincts but it's not those instincts for caring so i wanted to dis, to figure out for myself well what instincts are involved and that really is what the book ended up being about um so can you tell us so in, in your book you, you describe uh i think you say there are four instincts that upon which this kindness towards strangers uh is built upon maybe you've mentioned them already but, or, but i think you're alluding to other potential instincts yeah right so i i think there is well the four are reputation um, our, um, reciprocity, very limited, very, very limited, reason, and our ability to track our incentives and figure out what's good for us. So I think we do invest in others when we see a good bargain. I think we have a psychology that is, that, that is able to size up when we might get something out of helping another person individually. And that could be grounded to some extent in reciprocity, um, the very reciprocity that I just spent uh, you know, a minute or two dissing. Um, but the second, and I think possibly more important of the evolved instincts for concern for others, is that we really like having a good moral reputation. We like being seen as good people, magnanimous, generous, 
liberal in giving. Um, and there is an ev- evolved reason for that, which is liberality in giving signals that you have the capac- the willingness and the ability for liberality in giving. And people want to be around people who are cool like that. You know, if you are a you know, generous person, you know, you are a mensch, you're the kind of person that sh- clearly shows an interest in other people's welfare. Like, I want to be friends with you because I've got, I've got a welfare too. And I'm interested in surrounding my pe- myself you know, with people who take an interest in other people's welfare. So reputation, I think, is, is a kind of currency that we've evolved to, to track. So it's appealing to us, maybe for reasons we don't have conscious access to, in order to do good things for others that get repaid to us, that redound to our, well, our, our, well, our welfare um, by uh, attracting people around us who would want to do nice things for us in order to um, form relationships with us. I think those are important, but I don't think they really tell the full story of history, um, particularly history over the past, let's call it 500 years. I think what's been more important, and we could, you know, we could even go back to, you know, 2,000 years or something like that. I think what's been more important is our capacity for finding reasons for action. Um, we have been confronted over and over again through history with mass suffering, and uh, as you know, even. 12,000 years back when we began to move into cities, we began to encounter for the first time strangers, true strangers, that we knew were suffering. We didn't know who they were. They lived clear on the other side of town. They were widows. They were orphans. They were vulnerable. They, had had, they had, were the victims of bad luck, death of a breadwinner, crop failure. All the cows died. And uh, their you know, over time, their lot in life gets worse and worse and worse. Other people, just through sheer luck, their their welfare gets better and better and better. And we're living in uh, a world in which what really ends up mattering is not to us, is not our communities, but it's our lineages. So um, this is the first encounter with mass suffering, um, I, I think, in, in, in the world of cities and city-states and nations that we encountered. And we see this and uh, have asked what we should, we should do about it. Similar crises through time. Um, the, dr- the plummeting of, of wages in the 14th century, 15th century, um, uh, and uh, the uh, hunger and epidemic led to droves of, and, and, the, and the wars that were producing ve- war, uh, veterans who weren't able to feed themselves, they had no skills, are showing up on, at the city gates with disease and poverty. And that's bringing all kinds of second-order effects into our cities. So what are we supposed to do in response to those people? Um, and we come up, uh, intellectuals, leaders, elites, uh, aristocrats, um, thinking people say, like, what are we supposed to do? The city is getting kind of cruddy. You know, how should we, what's the best response we can have to this, this, you know, to people dying in the streets? It's not seemly, you know, it's, it's not a good look for, for our city. So how can we, re- you know, what's a good response? Again, we can follow our incentives. What do we care about? And then how do we reason our way to solutions? So I think that ability to track it, to find and track incentives, and then to figure out 
how do we how do we address them? That's called practical reasoning by philosophers. So it's it's not sort of you know asking um, trying to figure out whether Socrates was mortal, you know, um, or whether a, you know it's it, whether a, a tree that falls in the woods without anyone hearing it actually made a noise. It's not that kind of reasoning. It's practical reasoning. Something we care about. I'm going to figure out what I think the best course of action is. My answer is very self-centered. It's it's based on what I can know locally. It's it doesn't take in all the data. It has my biases in it. So you hear my reasons and you process them and you knock holes in them. And you do the same thing. You come up with your reasons. I hear them. I knock holes in them. And ultimately because we're track we're trying to get to something good. We have a criterion for what we care about as a society. We can process reasons through deliberation, through debate, through argumentation to come up with corporate courses of action. And that's what I see being the drivers of history with regard to the welfare of strangers. So that's what I wanted to talk about. Our ability to follow incentives and the acquisition of reasons. Yeah, so it strikes me that the way that you're describing this account is it doesn't necessarily have to have any kindness in it. So if I, if I'm just annoyed that there is a bunch of penniless people in the streets and they're getting in my way and maybe they'll knife me for my purse, you know, I I don't want that. And so something has to be done. So is that kind of what you're proposing or is it tied to like an authentic desire for other people to do well? That's great. So I think we do have built-in concern for others. Uh, we have empathy, we have compassion, and th- those um, sentiments are certainly activated by flesh and blood interactions, encounters with people who are suffering. This is why charitable appeals on TV often inf- you know, involve footage of emaciated children, grieving widows, um, you know, kids too sick to get out of bed. It's because we look at innocent suffering and we it it moves us it 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 moves us to action in a way that statistics just cannot so there's there's scope we in fact we exploit that evolved hardware all the time to make concern for others happen but that the very act of producing those commercials doesn't need to come from those compassionate sentiments I can simply say it's morally wrong for people in the developing country who just had the bad luck to be born in South Sudan um, to uh, not be able to get enough to eat uh, or to uh, be, be likely to be raped you know, in the course of war. It's not fair. And it's because of my recognition of its unfairness that I want to do something. I'm motivated to, do, to change the world in some way that will shake out resources that we can use to improve those people's lot in life. So my action at no point is compassion-based. It's reason-based. But I might try to get you to act by um, budging your capacity for compassion. So at the the level of who's engineering these levers in society, um, they could be acting out of, (laughs) you know, they could be disciples of Peter Singer or something like that, um, who 
recognize the importance of alleviating suffering, which may or may not involve compassion, but then when they're operating in the world to try to activate people, they might appeal to their capacity for compassion. Um, so, so Mike, I wonder if, uh, if you're familiar with another book that just came out, uh, I think uh, earlier this year, um, that covers similar terrain. Uh, so it's a book by Roger Bregman um, called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to, to, to see your book and his book side by side because they, they start out at different starting points, right? So his book is actually trying to overturn this notion that, you know, civilization has domesticated us, has made us kind, has made, a, made it uh, uh, likely that we can live together in groups. He's actually, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's influenced by Rousseau, suggesting actually, you know, that, we, you know, you know, way back when prehistoric man and woman, um, they were actually kind and compassionate and actually, it's true, didn't have too many encounters with strangers, but when they did, they would easily share. Um, and he's right, and he's essentially arguing that actually we are, you know, innately kind and, and good. And in fact, it's only when, you know, agriculture came on the scene and, and the ownership of land came on the scene that then, you know, selfish kind of motives uh, uh, came into play. So I'm not sure if you're familiar yeah. with the book or if you, if you thought about it. Um, yeah, yeah I'm, I am familiar um, with uh, Rutger's book. Um, I, I think where we differ, I, I think I, I actually think you, you summarized it perfectly. He takes a Rousseau view um, of what the capacity for caring is and how far it's nat- what its natural scope is and and he does he certainly argues that our the the natural scope for our regard for others includes strangers of the of the kind I'm talking about um whereas i my i i don't read the evolutionary biology or the anthropology or the history that way um i think that um the evidence is pretty good that um, we certainly have evolved the capacity to care for a certain kind of stranger, and, and I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, we have the capacity to care for them. We would intuitively care about their welfare. And these would indeed be people we've never met. But there is another class of stranger that we, would, we have evolved to approach with suspicion, with terror, and with hostility. And I don't know that Bregman takes that distinction as seriously as I do. So that's where we differ, because that group of people that we evolved to regard with suspicion, hostility, terror, is precisely the class of individuals that today we are demonstrating concern for. Um, They're notional strangers. We don't encounter them on a face-to-face basis. But my point is, there's nothing in our minds that would cause us to regard them with compassion or care or desire to to help them. So the strangers we're really talking about, I think where we agree, are strangers from our own ethno-linguistic groups. Okay, and I think I think what um, Rutger wants to do is say that regard for strangers is this is the and and the and the evolved psychological hardware that governs those interactions is the hardware we bring to kindness in the modern world. I think, I think the regard for strangers that we bring into the modern world is, is a, 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 um, a psychology that 
doesn't really activate isn't isn't doesn't incorporate the mechanisms that evolved for people within our own cultural groups so we don't view people on clear on the other side of the world as members of our cultural groups we view them as others so um in the ancestral world we would have shot them full of arrows um or hid in fear um rather than view them as people like um um friends of friends or hey you your, you know, your second cousin um, is is married to, um, you know, my girlfriend's sister. You know, that's not really a stranger. That's sort of Kevin Bacon, right? Where you can, you know, you you know, if you sit and do enough small talk, you can find some link, and because of that link, you have incentives to take a good take good care of them. Look, you're going to go back and you know, if I'm nice to you, you're going to sing my praises. I I bet you'll. Um, uh, handle my second cousin with kid gloves. So um, that's the psychology I think we do not bring to the modern world. Or as I think um, that's precisely what um, Rutger wants to use. That's the filter in which he wants to explain our modern regard for strangers. So I think we do differ there a little bit. So I'm curious how much you think that this greater regard for the welfare of these kinds of strangers, so outgroup members, is a part of, maybe is explained by, maybe is the product of the same forces that caused people to, for want of a better way of putting it, to be less cruel and more concerned with other people's welfare in general, right? So we don't whip people publicly anymore as a punishment. We don't beat our children. Um, even when it comes to non-human animals, um, they're, you know, obviously eating meat entails a lot of animal suffering, but it's out of view, right? We, we don't torture animals for sport, any, most of us anyway. Um, do you think that this is all part of a kind of a bigger shift in thinking, or do you see this kind of outgroup concern as something separate from that? Yeah, I, I would place my book um, in, intellectually um, in the same vein, for example, as um, The Better Angels of Our Nature or possibly Enlighten Now, Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker or The Moral Arc, for example, by Michael Shermer. That was a very influential book for me. Because each of these books are, you know, they're progressivists, um, not in the classical sense of believing there's kind of a, of a force in us that's inevitably leading us to better and better, you know, uh, better and better people, but that history has so far progressed in the direction of more democracy, more rights, more regard for welfare of sentient creatures. Um, so yes, I, I think this, the same forces they're pointing to that, to explain why we care about the rights of women, why, why we think we should extend the franchise to women, um, why we think slavery is wrong, why we think democratic governments are better than authoritarian ones. Those same cognitive tools and institutions we've built to support the reasoning that we've progressively brought to these issues is the same kind of 
pro- set of psychological and institutional processes that I think are really responsible for why, you know, in the U.S. we devote six hundred billion dollars a year in, you know, private people's cash and volunteer time to volunteering, or why we send, um, you know, in the developed world we send billion, you know, one hundred fifty billion dollars a year to the developing world for humanitarian aid and development aid. It it is reasons and institutions, I think, that have done the heavy lifting in all of these areas, reducing violence, improving concern for the welfare of others. Um, So uh, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I wonder if uh, you can, uh, may not go to detail about all of them, but you mentioned, you know, uh, throughout your book, uh, you know, these seven historical confrontations with mass suffering. I think you've alluded to at least a couple of them already, but... um, I wonder if you could tell us, you know, what those, and, and when you argue, I, I believe that it's those seven confrontations that, that have shaped our psychology, uh, shaped our, you know, uh, moral emotions. Um, so which are those, what, what are the seven and why do they, you know, have the influence that they did? Sure. So um, 12,000 years ago, we began living in cities. We become a, a, aware for the first time ever of this massive inequality. Hunter-gatherers don't have anything approaching the kind of inequality that we began to have in when we when we began settling down in in city states, um, so I, I call that the age of orphans, um, because that really was I believe a confrontation with suffering that we'd never experienced before. The axial age, the age of the the genesis of the world religions, Judaism, classical Greek thought, uh, Indus River Valley religion, manifesting itself as um, modern Hinduism. Uh, Yellow River Valley, Chinese religion, uh, you know, reflecting itself in Confucianism, for example, Um, Buddhism. All of these world religions, strangely enough, seem to (laughs) discover the golden rule, more or less, at the same time. The confrontation with mass suffering, it seems to have triggered this, is uh, warfare, bloody, awful warfare, abetted by new technologies like the horse, um, and um, uh, um, bronze and steel weapons, and um, um, this this produces mass casualties on this massive scale. We also urbanization increases, and the old world, the the religious systems that existed until then are largely fatalistic, tribalistic. They just aren't good at explaining and helping us to. Uh, you know, make sense of this kind of suffering. Um, the entire story of um, the Buddha's enlightenment is, you know, uh, how how you cope with the horrible suffering you see around you in mass quantities. So I call that, that's the axial age. It's the linking of spirituality with compassion. Very new idea on the scene. Leads to all kinds of interesting innovations. Um, it's the first, you know, in, in classical Greece, we see the first, first um Veterans Administration Program. We see the first old age pensions. We see the first uh, work programs. You know, uh, of course, you know these are second century BC versions of these things. But really fascinating into innovations. Similarly, um, axial age Judaism. You see all kinds of amazing innovations. Um, dowries for wit. Uh, uh, dowries for orphans. You know, marriage was very important. Um, you could not establish a new city without a doctor and a school. 
um, hostels, places for visitors from all ethnicities, from all cultural groups who are passing through to be able to stay and get a meal for the night. Um, um, uh, charitable purses, um, um, ways of collecting regularly, um, um, uh, money that could be dispensed to the, the you know the, the ultra poor. Um, so lots of innovations really built around how do we build better societies in light of the fact that all of these religious systems are saying you want to be close to God, you want to experience fulfillment, compassion's the way. So that's a reason. That's a reason that they invented. Um, the third era, which takes place in classical Europe, is what I call the age of prevention. And that's where you have all of these, um, you know, city-states, um, you know, Bruges is an example, but there's like 60, 60 cities that ultimately are encountering the second-order consequences of poverty and academic, uh, epidemic, excuse me. And they're trying to come up with a systematic way to deal with it, to improve people's lots in life, to restore them to self-sufficiency, as a matter of fact. You know, how do you keep poor people out of the streets and not just sweep them, you know, in a place where they won't be quite so, you know, unflattering to us, but how do you restore them to uh, being able to make a living for themselves? It, 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 it's actually incredibly modern, you know, sounding. Um, in fact, these kind of debates that go through history, we don't want to support people who aren't going to make good. You know, we don't want to just throw money down the sewers, you know, to people who won't appreciate it. These are like old debates, you know, like, and in some ways, satisfactory answers were discovered 500 years ago. We just, for, we forget, you know, we often forget the, the, the fact that like, people have thought this through, it, you know, over many hundreds of years. So I call that the age, <laughs> that's the age of prevention. Um, from there, um, I, I, I pick out what I call the first, well, I, it's, by no means did I come up with this t uh, term. It's the first poverty enlightenment, which is due to the development and com um, it's a term that's due to the, the, the uh, Georgetown development uh, economist Martin Ravaillon, um, who really was hugely influential uh, on the trajectory of this book, actually. Um, we encounter in our society, within our societies for the first time, the fact that uh, the industrial age is really dislocating people from um, all the informal institutions they had for self-insurance. Uh, people move to cities, lots of wage pressure, industrialization is creating, um, you know, dislocations. People are moving from the country and because the cities provide the possibility of a better way of life. But um, there are all these ways in which through science, through, uh, through research, actually, we begin to see like, yes, um, people are better off for the industrial age, but it also creates lots of insecurities. So you begin to see the um, first attempts to scientifically document poverty and to operationally define it. And um, statistically measure it, d use epidemiological methods to determine its prevalence. And out of all these efforts toward the turn of, uh, I, I, never, I always forget how you use the turn of the century. Is that the, is the turn of the century the beginning of the next one? Or the, <laughs> uh, but the, as, as the clock changed from the 1800s to the 1900s, and you see the, the first 
um, um, disability insurance programs for workers, the first illness insurance programs for workers. And almost as a matter of, you know, kind of slippery slope reasoning, you begin to see people saying, well, if we're going to help people to get back on their feet when they're ill and get back to restore them to self-sufficiency, why wouldn't we uh, help them to, you know, um, pr- provide them benefits for sick relatives or for sick children? Or why wouldn't we uh, help them to have adequate housing? Or why wouldn't we help them to, um, to, to get through old age with pensions? So you see the kind of a kind of reasoning trickling through society where people are increasingly saying, why don't we secure people against all of these slings and arrows of life? Why, you know, we're, we're pretty, we're plenty wealthy. Why don't we, why don't we do some work to try to make life this this is the this is the genesis of the social safety net, first poverty enlightenment, as Ravion called it. Um, uh, coincident with with that in time is a period that that I pick out again. I can't take credit for the name. It's uh, due to um, a, George, a Georgetown researcher named Michael Barnett who refers to the uh, the humanitarian Big Bang, and this was. Uh, uh, middle of the 18th century, when suddenly we begin to realize we can do some things to improve, um, to improve, uh, to to ease suffering uh, in the wake of humanitarian crises that are taking place in a different part of the world. Natural disasters, the vic- the casualties of war, um, the um, collateral damage from war, children. Um, you know, people who aren't who aren't soldiers who are still getting, you know, injured, um, disease, starving. Why? Why are? Why do they suffer? Why do the victims of earthquakes have to suffer? Um, surely we can do something to help them. And this is a period not only where governments begin to realize they don't need to just think of their interact their relationships with other countries as zero sum games gain. Pardon me, zero sum games where your loss, Portugal, is our gain, you know, in France or England. We're increasingly interdependent on each other because of international trade. So um, your, your loss is my loss in many ways. So governments began to take it, you know, nations began to see themselves as having rights to aid and responsibilities to providing aid to other nations. Um, these are called the offices of humanity, as, it, as it's termed. Powerful kind of um, extension of the same reasoning you see in the first poverty enlightenment to interactions among nations. This is where we see the first um, um, voluntary international associations, the Red Cross, CARE, Save the Children. Um, Before the late 18th century, it was illegal in most places for people to create voluntary associations because they were viewed as competing power bases. Isn't that amazing to think that you, you couldn't establish a nonprofit, you know, independent of the government 200 years ago? It's just astonishing to me, 250 years ago. Anyway, that's the humanitarian Big Bang. It leads to um, uh, UNICEF. It leads to the, the proliferation of organizations that emerged, both non-governmental and governmental, to take care of the victims of uh, World War I and World War II, the 19 million people who were dislocated in Europe following World War II, in many ways the suffering after the war. I mean, it certainly competed 
to match the suffering during the war. So um, this, is, this is the humanitarian Big Bang spreading well into the, the, the 1940s. Um, there's what Ravion terms, and um, I picked up uh, the term to call the second poverty enlightenment, where we begin to care about the poverty in the developing world. So this is where you begin to see organizations not simply reaching out to people in other parts of the world in response to humanitarian disasters, but we say, how can we help them develop their capacities? How can we help them to be, you know, nations to become self-sufficient? These are not people in our own countries. These are people in other, other parts of the world. So this culminates, I think, in the Millennium Development Project of the turn of the 21st century, I guess, the end of the 20th century, um, where we start to get really serious about putting some resources into um, dealing with the problems that prevent other countries, developing countries, from flourishing. So move, finally, we're coming home here to, uh, you know, this, this seven, the seventh hinge of history, which I call the age of impact. And that's where we live now where we're still concerned about the developing world. We're, con we're still concerned about the uh, people here within our own borders. Um, but we are really thinking more than ever about cost effectiveness, the uses of science to, you know, deliberate uses of science and the deliberate uses of the best ideas from the previous era, previous eras, uh, the best ethical uh, ideas, the best scientific ideas, and combining those all with a real eye toward how do we get the most bang for our buck? Because surely there are some things we can do that don't work. And probably some things that do work. So we ought to be investing in a clear-eyed way in the things that are going to do the most to elevate people's welfare. So that's I call it the age of impact. Um, you, can, you can think of... It's probably typified by the effective altruism movement. Um, which Peter Singer and others have championed. But the idea behind this is let's, let's take impact seriously. Um, how can we use the finite resources at our disposal to do the most we can to make the world a better place? I mean, so, so, so Mike, this is, I mean, uh, just hearing this, your answer, I mean, it, I think this is so much about you and your book in, in the sense that this is not a typical psychology book. Uh, this is you know history. This is sociology. This is philosophy, um, and I think it's it's super impressive. Uh, you know, I, I've read my fair share of pop psych books, and this is not that kind of book um, in a good way. Um, thank so, you. Uh, well, thanks for that. Thanks for that answer. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so, Mike, you know, thank you so much for uh, for your time. We, we've taken a lot of it. Uh, but I think our listeners will really appreciate, uh, you know, appreciate all the time we took. So thank you Guys, so much. thank you so much. I, this was really stimulating and, and fun to, to do. So um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Great. Thanks for joining us.